Good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. I know people are still coming in, but um, while you're sitting down, just a quick upfront announcement. We had to call a little bit of an audible um, with where we've had our kids. Typically, we have our kids' community over in the library area. Um, some of our set up teardown guys this morning noticed a couple fleas. All right, happens in the summertime. But we're not about to have, we, we believe in exporting the gospel and helping you make disciples that make disciples. We don't want to export fleas to your homes. If you've ever had a flea, you know how big of a deal that is. So we basically moved our kids over to a hallway where we know in the classrooms on the, on the hallway right there, the main one, because we know that there are no fleas there. So um, just to put that out there, that's why that is the deal. And they're still working on the AC because it's the summer and this is when the school works on the school. So they start working on things, things start breaking. And so that's kind of what they're working through right now is how to get the AC to where it could work for the next school year. So thanks for bearing with us. Pretend you're in Haiti or something like that where they have fleas and hard weather and we will be fine. Um, but hey, if you're here and I haven't met you yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors at Legacy. I'm a teaching pastor, and I, I'm really excited about this passage today. So if you have a Bible or a device that you use, go ahead and flip over to Ephesians. We are cruising through a series that has been fun called Coram Deo. To look at Ephesians, Coram Deo meaning that we are in the presence of God, at the feet of God, under his authority and to his glory. A face-to-face -face relationship with God is what Coram Deo means. And uh, today we're going to look at a pretty tough text, to be honest with you. I love it. It's going to be a good text. I think it's going to serve us well today. It's going to show us Christ very clearly, and that's going to be uh, in 5.22. So Ephesians 5, verse 22. Actually, rewind it to verse 21. And I know we're catching the back half of a sentence in verse 21. still going to help us today, though. Dot, 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 verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, pause right there. I think one of the characteristics of Christianity and the church that is most frustrating to an unbelieving world is maybe how unretreating and inflexible and archaic the church looks in the face of some cultural ideas that we have today, right? Um, like maybe the origin of man or the origin of sin. The church has a view of that, but it looks very archaic and very inflexible 
according to what the culture sees. I also think that the roles that are found within a marriage, the purpose, the meaning, the direction of marriage, also to be one of those areas. So, I mean, let's just ask some real key questions real quick, right off the bat. Why does the marriage relationship have to be immovable? Why does it have to be inflexible? Why does it have to be so entrenched in the Bible? I mean, why? Why can't it flex and shift whenever the culture itself is flexing and shifting? Why does marriage have to be such a battleground issue where the church just won't move? I mean, these are big questions. I think they're valid ones. I think they're growing questions. I think they're actually questions that the church needs to be very fluent and very clear in how we communicate. And I think our answers probably need to stretch beyond saying, because the Bible says so. Or because God says so, even though that those are true statements. I think this topic, marriage, sexual role, personhood, I think this topic is going to probably rise above the noise of a lot of very big topics as far as the one for the next generation or two. I don't think smoking weed is going to hit the same tenor and pitch that this one will. I mean, today is the first day that the recreational use of marijuana is now legal in Vermont. That's state number nine, if you're counting, right? That's a pretty big deal. I don't think it's as big a deal as this. Guns, social media, Islam, these are big deals. I don't think it's as big a deal as this. I think this area, the church will need to be the most focused and clear in its communication, right? Here's a quote from Andreas Kostenberger. He is a theologian out of St. Louis, and he wrote a book called God, Marriage, and Family. This is a quote that I think is going to be helpful for us. He says, for the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family made up of a father, mother, and a number of children has in recent years recent years, begun to be viewed as one among several options. Friends, that was written almost 20 years ago. Almost 20 years ago. He had no idea what was around the bend. He had no idea what was right around the corner. Now, if you were here last week, you saw that you will be able to, as a Christian, live a biblically defined marriage and the world won't freak out on you. It won't go bananas and label you. But if you take a moral stand and say that marriage is this, then you'll get a toxic response. And of course, the low-hanging fruit in a statement like that is same-sex alternatives when it comes to family and marriage. But I think today what I would like to do is also put the woman's value as a human, the woman's value as a wife, as a creator, as a worker, as an inventor, as an investor at the top of the list that I think the church needs to be very honest and be very clear in. I, I think it's a high value for us. And I think if being clear and being honest is of a high value, I think we have to start by tackling the word submit. It's the first word that slaps you in the face when you read a passage like that, is it not? Submit. And that word has taken a beating. And, it, and we've gotten to a place where we're abandoning the Christ-likeness of a word like submit. Christ himself submitted his life. He is a professional submitter. He was the greatest submitter to have ever walked the face of this planet. Paul himself submitted his life. I try every single day to submit my life. I think there is a freedom in submitting your life, and I think it points to the gospel. That's the point I'm going to make today. But I do think overall this passage, this Ephesians 5 passage, I think it gets a different response than it did the very first time it was read aloud as a letter to a young burgeoning church that Paul helped plant 
in the area of Ephesus. I think we're getting two different ones. I think when a crowd hears something like this read today, people hear something different. They have a grid now that did not exist quite like that back then. So what people hear today is that women have less value than men. Almost like a non-person person, right? I think people feel like this means that the husband can just get away with anything he wants to get away with, even if he's a dope, right? Or maybe people think that women can never have any value or lead, and they need a man to matter. I think today the average woman hears a passage like this as a demeaning passage, or they're tempted to. And culture comes right alongside and says, yes, it is demeaning, and if you want your personhood to die as a woman, just go to the church and be a Christian. That's where your individuality goes to die, right? This is not how it was received back when it was written. Not at all. Not at all. I want you to imagine being in a living room around a campfire or in a setting like this where it was read aloud for the very first time. Hey, Paul wrote us a letter. Cool. Let's see what Paul has to say. They all knew Paul. He all planted the church. They all sit around. What they would have walked away with is a deep sigh of relief. They would have felt valued. They would have felt women relieved, valued, inspired, deeply considered, thought for, this would have given them a deep sense of peace because for the first time in a very, very deeply patriarchal society, it looks like they have value, right? Looks like they have value. Listen, the gospel story is a story about submission. If I could just get that out from the get-go. The gospel story is one about submission. And in fact, to bring more clarity to this word submit, it bears worth mentioning that this charge to submit is not just to the females or to the wives, right? It's also to the XY chromosome. In fact, I counted all the words in this passage. 78% of this passage addresses the husband, not the wife. 78%. Most of the weight is going to fall on the groom and the husband being the Christ imager who must lay down his life to cherish a bride that he values as much as he values his own life. Right? When I do weddings, and I've done a few, and people are in here, I've done your weddings, one of the lines I try to get in there is that we must do that as grooms when the bride deserves it the least, as a form of grace, as a form of showing that the gospel is in fact submission, even on the groom's point of view. But if you take the modern marriage, the 2018 marriage, and you dissect it, and you pull the gospel frame away from the marriage, then you're left with a big fat why. What is marriage at that point? It's just an, it's an arrangement. It's an agreement where two people that love each other, I guess, just get together. It's like dating, but a little bit more formal, right? Sometimes not that much more formal because you get a divorce just as quick as you can break up in a dating relationship. But if you pull the gospel frame, if you extract it from marriage, you're left with why not? Why not make marriage fit what culture says it should be? Why not just move the goal lines a little bit, redefine it entirely? That's what happens without the gospel. This is what John Stott says about marriage. Now, every time I read this quote, and I've read it a few times already, I, I am struck by how many descriptive terms. So we're going to count them together as a group, as an exercise. Marriage, he says as a definition, is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutual, supportive partnership. 17 descriptive words. That is a stout definition. 
I mean, he really drilled it down. And that definition right there is going to range somewhere between very unhelpful and disgusting to probably most of the city that we live in right now. Probably. But yet, when you place that definition inside the story of God for mankind through the person of Jesus, it makes total sense. It makes total sense, and now we know why with marriage. I mean, sure, the, the one woman, one man, that's going to cause problems for people outside the church. But let me tell you what causes problems for people inside the church. Mutually supportive partnership. That's a problem for many of us in this room. Mutually supportive partnership. Sure, same-sex marriage. I mean, it, it will distort and rip apart the picture of the gospel because there are no two grooms or two brides in the gospel picture. And we're going to talk about why that's important here in just a moment. But just as much as that destroys the gospel picture, I think so does a marriage where both spouses are not mutually submitting to each other. I think that blows it up just as fast, in fact. One of the things I like to say in marriage ceremonies when I get a chance to marry a young couple is that one of the greatest illustrations God has given mankind for the love of the gospel is the very boring, predictable, and normal institution of marriage. And so we don't just preach the gospel with our mouths, we preach the gospel with our marriage. I think that's important for young couples to know. So let's just take a quick walk through the first two parts of this passage. So go, go back to your text in Ephesians 5.22. We're just going to read two verses right here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Okay, pause. There, there is no verb in the original writing that says, wives submit to your husbands. It says, wives to your husbands. But it's a continuation of the verse before it where it says that we should be submitting to each other. That's why we started in verse 21. You should, you should all be submitting to each other. Wives to your husbands. That's how it kind of rolled off the tongue back then. Now, Still, though, submit is a tricky word. It's, a, it's got a lot of provocation built into it. It's kind of the wick that Wiley e. Coyote lights and then runs for the hills. You could say the word if you want, but you've got to run for your life as soon as you're done saying it. And that's how we treat it today. But that's not the design behind a beautiful word like this. I think one of the biggest reasons we mistreat and drop the word submit is something called eisegesis. Okay. I've explained this from the pulpit once or twice. I think this is a good time to bring it up again. Exegesis is the opposite of eisegesis. Exegetical reading or exegesis is where we take the Bible and we read the passage and we take wisdom from the passage, but we have to take some things into consideration. The context, who wrote it? Who, who's receiving it? Why is it being written? Everything, the moment of it all. We're taking the text as it is. And we're basically letting it interpret us, right? That's exegesis. It means to stretch or to draw out. Eisegesis is the opposite. That's where we take our preconceptions, our resolve, our prejudices, our ideas, our fancy education, and we cram it into the words that are in the Bible, and we make the Bible say something it's not actually saying. We've done this with the word submit. By the way, we've done it with the word slavery, too, all right? just to throw that out there because it'll probably come up in the next two sermons one way or the other. When it comes to slavery, the slavery mentioned in the Bible is not Mississippi 30 years before the Civil War. I don't agree with slavery in the Bible. I'm not here to endorse it. I don't think it's an awesome thing. 
it's just not the same thing that we all understand. When I say the word slavery, we all think civil war. That's because we have done something eisegetically. We'll take something that we understand from history books or something that we saw in a movie, and we will bring it and transport it into a text where it was never meant to be. We've done the same thing with the word submit. That's why we fumble it and kick it around. Submission does not mean inferiority or subservience. It doesn't mean shedding off all of your significance and becoming a non-person with no identity. It doesn't mean allowing yourself to be abused. It doesn't mean allowing yourself to be used. It doesn't mean being blindly obedient or silently passive. It doesn't mean any of that. None of that. In fact, we should probably come up with just a working definition. Now, here's the first part of a working definition that might be more helpful to us. Submission is just giving oneself up to someone else. Very simple. Giving oneself up to someone else. Now, this is going to require faith, a certain kind of faith. It's going to require a faith that God, the glory of God in Christ, God is better than your self-preservation and autonomy. God's better. God's better than me first. It requires you being satisfied with that, and it requires the Holy Spirit to remind you as time goes on that this is true and give you the grace to believe it. Okay, let's go on. Let's read verse 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. We're seeing a second word thrown in there and a second idea that might be new for some of you, and that is headship. It's another troubling word. Maybe not as troubling as submit for people, but it's up there, right? Headship. But the idea of headship is not rooted in Paul's mind and his opinion of how things should go down in marriages. It's actually rooted in creation. It's, a crea- it's part of the creational mandate. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 19. Stay where you're at. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, this is when the cosmos began, from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Headship is not chauvinistic. Headship is creational because we live in an ordered universe where everything rotates around something being in an authority and then something being in submission to that authority. We have it all the way throughout the Bible. We have the fact that God is an authority over man. We see that in James. Man is an authority over nature. We have that in Genesis. Parents are an authority over children, or they should be. We see that in Ephesians. We'll talk about that next week. Governors are in an authority over those that they govern. We have that in 1 Peter. Employers are in authority over employees. We have that in 1 Peter. We have that in Ephesians. Spiritual leaders are in authority over those that they lead spiritually. We have that in 1 Peter. We have that in Hebrews. We understand this intuitively, though, right? Because we have a coach who is an authority. We have athletes that submit to that coach. We have a principal that's an authority. We have students that submit to the authority of that principal. So maybe we can work on our working definition. Let's add to it. Not only is submission just giving oneself up to someone else, it's also voluntarily stepping into an order so that there's completeness, meaning, and direction. Completeness, meaning, and direction. Listen, I've seen some scholars, brilliant ones, take the word support and say, go ahead and feel free to change that out with submit. It's the same thing. It doesn't break the original language. 
Feel free to do that if you want. I've actually, personally, I've lost the sour taste in my mouth for the word submit, but if it is a stumbling block for you, throw the word support in there. It's all the same thing. A wife supports her husband when she voluntarily organizes herself into this arrangement with the husband where she can complete her husband in a way that the unit, the couple, moves forward with meaning, direction, and purpose. Right? This is what Paul is not saying. This is going to be important for us. This is what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that women are of lesser value. He has no agenda here to shut down, belittle, or put women in their place. In fact, what he did is very different. What he did is revolutionary. In the Roman culture, that was incredibly patriarchal. The Greek culture, they had more value on the woman, but it wasn't as bad as the Roman. But the Hebrew culture, the woman had no rights. She was like a secondary class citizen, right? She was just there. She was just kind of taking air, sitting at the back of the bus, sitting at the back of the room, not allowed to talk. So here's a quick example of what I'm talking about. Take divorce. The Hebrew idea of divorce, if you're a husband and you don't want that same wife anymore, maybe her cooking is taking a drop off the edge, or maybe she just won't stop talking about this or that. For whatever it is, you're going to get rid of her. All you have to do is write what we would call today a memo. <laughs> you write a, scribble out a memo, sign it, it's done. No lawyers. You're divorced. Now, now, that's not what they would say. What they would say is they're releasing that woman back into singleness, a.k.a. poverty, and being uncovered, and being at the mercy of whoever wants to take advantage of them. Guess who does not have the right to do that? Women. Wives don't have the right to divorce quite like men do. So, what Paul is doing here is revolutionary. After hearing Ephesians 5 said out loud, for the first time, men and women are walking out of that room thinking very differently than they walked in. Men are thinking, you mean to tell me? I mean, I love my wife, but she has value to the level that I need to serve her, just like I'm serving my own body, even to my death for her benefit, that her mess is actually my mess. And that I own that. And I lay my life down even when she deserves it the least. That's what I'm hearing. It's very beautiful. Another thing Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that women must treat their husbands as the Lord. I hear this sometimes and it scares me, right? That they must treat their husband as the Lord. Paul did not say that. He's not saying that women are supposed to be subject to their own husbands in the same proportion that they are to God himself. When Paul says that they must submit to their husbands in everything, he is not erasing their submission to the Lord. The wife has a higher responsibility than to the husband. I, this is common sense, though, right? I mean, here's just a rule of thumb. It is common sense. Anytime you're in a situation where you have two spheres of authority that are conflicting, you just pick the bigger authority, do you not? Right. I mean, we get this. I, we live in an HOA. It has a rule or two or 52, has a lot of rules, right? There's no sound ordinance in there. Or maybe they like flirt with the idea of a sound ordinance or something. I don't know. I haven't really read it. But, but if a sheriff came up there and parked his car and said, hey, we got a problem with the noise. I've gotten a complaint. I'm not going to hide behind the HOA's authority. I'm going to honor the sheriff. Our government has a law or two or 10,852 laws. I mean, we have a lot of laws. But I treasure my Lord's more. I'm a Christian before I'm an American. It's when two spheres collide, you always vie for the one with the strongest authority. It's just a rule of thumb. In the same way, when a husband conflicts as an authority with God, the wife has a responsibility not to the husband, but to the Lord. 
Think about that. This is why community and advocacy is vital. This ball gets fumbled a lot. If you know a wife or you are a wife who is used or devalued and the husband is hiding behind the Bible as some sort of a containment strategy, community needs to help this woman understand that there is a responsibility and an authority that is even higher than her husband. Because this gets, this gets abused a lot. Another thing that Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that women can only be wives and mothers. I have to be careful here, okay? There is a cultural current to emancipate or liberate women from the home as if the home is some sort of a prison. <laughs> Listen, I agree that wives should, they can, and they should create, work, lead, invest, invent, contribute at the highest level because God has called them and gifted them as image bearers. I disagree that the home is a prison or that the role of the wife mom is an insignificant one in the face of what women can do outside of the home. Again, I'm trying to be careful, but there is a pervading thought that's really shown its head more in the last 2.5 generations than it did in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. That there are successful women outside the home, and then there are moms and wives who I guess could have done something with their life, but they laid up, right? And they just decided to go into the home and just kind of take it easy, I guess. I just don't think that's very helpful. It's definitely not biblical. I think all it can do really over time is invite shame or arrogance. The Bible as a whole truly allows, and endorses by the way, married women to be in a career so long as it does not upend the divine pattern for home and marriage. You can see it on display in Proverbs 31. Husband or wife, man or woman in here, if you've not read Proverbs 31, it is a great, it's a theologically deep proverb because we see a woman who is not upended wife slash mother, but she's incredibly industrious. She's got a full-time job. She's working. I've heard other pastors say and other men say, she's not really working. She's just kind of administrating the funds that her husband went out and worked for. Okay, got it. That's also what a money manager does, and that's called a job, right? And he gets paid a lot of money. So call it whatever you want. What I see is high level of delegation and leadership and creativity. She's doing an incredible amount of work, capital W, work. And she's a mom. And it didn't flip that upside down for her. It's a helpful passage for me. Maybe it's a helpful passage for you. You should read it if you've not read it. I think the Bible pushes and allows and endorses this. But let me say this, okay? And I've got it in bold and in purple on my notes so that I don't mess it up. I'm going to read it right off the page, all right? A married woman can surely function at any role in society. A married woman can surely function at it any role in society, but if she is accepted before God the responsibility of marriage and of family, she must align her goals in the direction with this. What does this mean? Paul is saying that her primary role is one of support, not in exclusion of everything else on this big wide world, but certainly not above everything in this big wide world. Okay? This is no small thing. That's why I'm spending the amount of time on it that I am. This is no small thing. I've watched a legion of highly successful and competent women struggle with that murkiness of leaving a very successful, competent autonomy and going to one that is more of a support feel in a home. And when they 
bang from one to the other, it's not always a pretty thing. It, it looks like a slow death. And, and some women actually don't do it very well. And they preserve the autonomy at the cost of the family unit, and it can destroy a marriage really quickly. Real quickly. Listen, if you have emails on this or questions, I, I just suggest email them to info at legacyknoxville.com, okay? Because this probably should get its own class, what I'm talking about right now, and I probably shouldn't be the one to teach it. It'd be better if a woman taught this class, right? For obvious reasons. <laughs> but if you have questions, we want to help walk you through it. I just don't have time to spend the next 20 minutes on it. So info at legacyknoxville.com. We'd love to take the time to walk you through that. But I want to move on to the next thing that Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that women are alone in submitting because they're not. I just grow bored with hearing Men are called to love, but women are called to submit, right? That's not even how it's said, though, is it? This is usually how it's said. Men are called to love, but women are called to submit, right? Trying to draw a distinction, goofy, because what is submitting if it's not giving yourself up to love the other at your cost? And what is loving for a man if it's not giving yourself up for the other at your own cost? Are they not saying the exact same thing? It's mutually preferring the other at a cost of self. You see, submit isn't such a dirty word anymore, is it? When you just let the Bible do what the Bible does. It's not such a dirty word. Yes, the church, bride, submits to the groom in Jesus, but the groom in Jesus submits his life for the bride in the church. It's mutual preference. It's the gospel. The gospel's a story of submitting. Anytime I'm in a marriage counseling appointment, either as a pastor or a husband, or a husband. There is usually, I'll just say the primary issue is that someone in that party, or both people in that party, have decided not to submit their life for the good of the other, but to hold on to self first. It's typically what's happening. Someone in that room is saying, me first. Someone is saying, that's your problem. Someone is saying, you've got a lot of work to do. Someone's saying these things. It's not my mess right? This is underneath marital discord. Men don't want to give themselves up and die to support their wives, and wives don't want to give themselves up and submit to support their husbands. That is the kernel behind sin in the marriage covenant. Me before you. We have a hard time taking responsibility for ourselves. We definitely don't want to take the responsibility for the other person. I mean, just think about it for your own self. If you're married in this room, where is self-preservation fighting to be championed in your marriage right now? Where is that happening? Where is me first most pronounced in your inside voice? Right? Where is that happening? I think we're really crafty in how we cover this up too. This is how we do it when we're really smart, right? when we're really thinking. We will craft a logic, it's a self-justifying one, where we expect the other person to clean themselves up before we die to serve them. This is what it sounds like in a living room with a couple, right? It sounds like the groom saying, well, it's really hard to lead when she won't follow. I mean, how can I be a leader if she's not gonna follow me ever? What is he saying? I'm not gonna die to myself until you improve your performance. If you just improved your behavior, then I could be more Christ-like. <laughs> I won't have to die. That's what's going on. But what, then what does the wife say? Hey, Buster, I'll follow you when you're worth following, right? You're going to have to step your game up a little bit. But then what is she saying? She's saying, when you improve your performance, then you will make it easier for me to die 
and put my life down and submit. They're both saying the same thing. They're both saying me first. This collision happens because we're handling people differently than the way that the gospel has handled us. Consider the gospel. Just zoom out. Think about the gospel. And you have a groom in Jesus pursuing a bride who is deeply flawed and deeply failed and deeply needy because she's a mess and she didn't create the mess. Or she did create the mess. Jesus didn't create the mess. But he adopts the mess and he does it to his own death. And in response, the bride trustingly submits to this groom by giving up her own life because her desire is to support and step into an order. I think this is the only way we all walk out of here feeling elevated and considered and valuable. I think it's the only way we all walk out of here laying our life down is if the gospel truly frames our marriage, if the, if the gospel does it. Hear me when I say this. You no longer need your spouse to complete you with their awesome performance and behavior. The gospel frees you from that need, from needing that. Gospel frees you from the need that they behave better for you to be sacrificial and lay your life down. You also don't need to prove or defend your value in this world. You don't need autonomy to do that. And even when your spouse fails, and they will fail probably before you get to the car, you won't fall to pieces because your satisfaction's not anchored in them. God is better than even your marriage. Hear that now. God is even better than the perfect spouse. Here's a quote I pulled from Matt Norman's book. By the way, we have a table of them back there. If you want one, grab one. The church has already bought them, and we would love to give them out if this is of interest to you. It's a book called Foreign, and it's a gospel-driven conversation about homosexuality. It's a fantastic book. It's one of my top 10, top five books of all time. I've really enjoyed reading it repeatedly. This is a quote he has in there that has nothing to do with homosexuality, Okay. But it's a good quote, and it has a lot to do about what we're talking about today. He says, only when you see your marriage as exactly this, and he's talking about the gospel frame I'm talking about, only when you see your marriage as exactly this do you understand its role in this world. It is not there to satisfy you. God is here to satisfy you. Only when you're secure in his imparted worth will you stop requiring your spouse to respect and love you. Only when you're secure in his forgiveness will you let go of vindicating yourself from your spouse in anger. Only when you're secure in Jesus' embrace will you serve your spouse selflessly as you ought to. Super smart. You're so smart, man. And this book. Look at him covering his face, everybody. Look at him. <laughs> it's a great book. See how the gospel resets our relationships? Next week it's going to reset how parents and kids act. And how employers and employees act. The gospel resets everything. The culture says we should operate this way. And the Bible says not so fast. Because that's going to point to the gospel. Because everything we read in this word is pointing to the gospel. All right, let's jump in. I'm going to finish this passage. And we're going to get intensely practical and get out of this. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We see that a Christ-like love is a sacrificing love. It's a love in the shape of a cross. It's a foot-washing love. It's a love that goes to die that goes to die. And I tell you, I've always wanted to put the charge in wedding vows for you to go and die. But it sounds so gruesome and morose. No bride or, or groom would ever go for that. I would never get to do another wedding again because no one wants to hear that kind of stuff. But if you've been married for longer than 16 seconds, I mean, can we all admit that to be married and to do a really good job is to really is to go and die. It's to lay down your preference for the, for the other person. So how do we do this practically? How do we go and die practically in this foot-washing-shaped love? I'm just going to give three very big basics out there. Some of them you're going to intuit. One or two you might not have ever heard before. I think one is I think to be practical, this means supporting our spouse when it makes sense to our spouse, regardless of how it makes sense to us. That's a part of dying inside. You see, we all receive love in different ways. It's just the way we're brought up, it's the way we're raised, it's our genetics, it's all of it. Right, the way God made us. Some of us, it's just words of encouragement. That like means the world to you. One key word, just so awesome. It just fills you up. Another, it might be gifts or works of service or physical touch, right? The, the, it, just different ways. It doesn't matter how you receive it. It matters how your spouse receives it. So is an example. My wife is a service person, right? She, like, she feels valued and elevated and loved and appreciated when I do things like fix drywall or clean kitchen or vacuum car. Like for her, that is it. That's not me though. I'm not that person. I'm like a physical touch guy, right? I'm the PDA guy. I'm totally fine with public displays of affection. That's me. I love it, right? So there's a piece of me, because I'm just like all of you, there's a piece of me that I wish that she was just like me. I want her to be a physical touch person, too. You want to know why? Because then I wouldn't have to work really hard to show her love in a way that she understands it. As it is, she's a service person. So for me to love her means dying. It means cleaning, fixing, scrubbing, doing something like that. Not as much fun. What is it for your spouse? What is it for your spouse? And how hard is that for you? I think the second practical is going to be geared just for men right? You're just for men in this, and that is just to pastor your home. You're the first pastor of your home. That's the way the Puritans used to say it. This is actually probably deserving of its own series as well, but we see in this passage that Jesus cleanses his bride spiritually, and he does through the washing of the word. He does so through the gospel. That's how the groom cleansed the church. That's how we become saved and sustained, is by the gospel he is washing us with. So how do we do this practically, right? How do you apply the gospel to your bride, men? What does truth look like whenever you hear her say things that aren't true? You see her wilting under fear and insecurity and doubts. What does your voice sound like? Are you saying things that are true and honest? Okay, are they helpful? Is it gospel-saturated? Is it causing her not to look more at herself but, but more at God so that she has more confidence, again, not in herself but in how God sees her? Are you able to do that? Also, be concerned for her well-being. 
How is she growing? Like theologically, how is she growing? Her spiritual disciplines, how is she growing? How is she developing? Is she alone? Is she lonely? Does she have friends? Who are those friends? Husbands, hear me really clearly. That is your job. We've had families leave this church and other churches I've been in and have led in. Families will leave because their wives could not get plugged in. That is a cop out. Wasn't the church's job. That's your job. It's not my job to find your wife a bestie. It's not Legacy's job to find your wife, her soulmate, in the same sex. Men, that is your job. You're going to have to have families over for dinner. You're going to have to maneuver what you need to maneuver. You need to help create space and create moments for your wife to not be alone. It's not the church, men. It's you. Okay? All right. Pastor your home. You know, here's a good example of this. I don't know if any of you know who Wayne Grudem is. Wayne and Margaret Grudem is a very treasured couple. He's a theologian. He um, spent most of his years in Chicago writing brilliant works. His theology has probably gone more to shape me than most most theologians. But his primary years of influence were in Chicago in these massive schools, right, with these great names, these huge names. If I were to throw out a bunch of them, you'd recognize them. But when they go on vacation to Phoenix, they notice that Margaret, Wayne's wife, She feels good. She can go biking. It's like adding 20 years to her life. And they realize it's because the climate of Phoenix was just far superior for her condition than it was in Chicago. So what did they do? Well, they decided, let's just look and see if there is a seminary in Phoenix. And there wasn't at the time. Later on, they found out that there was one, but it it wasn't anything like the seminaries that that he was currently teaching in. So what they ended up, by the way, they're in Phoenix now. But the way they ended up was landing on verse 28 and 29 of this passage where he wanted to go because of her, but she wanted to stay because of him. That's a little bit of what we're talking about. But men, you've got you've to drive that. You've got to lead that. You've got to create those conversations. Okay, practically, our last example is one where maybe we look at, as couples, how we support each other ahead of time in the division of labor. This is going to be as practical as you can possibly get. Because the basic role of leading and following authority and submission, that's pretty firm, that's pretty binding and in the word, but how is that expressed, determined by just the chore, just the thing? I'll put another quote up there by Andreas Kostenberger. Him and his wife wrote a book, And they have this quote that I really love. It's for today. Scripture doesn't give a lot of detail as to how God's design for men and women is to be worked out. So a traditional division of labor, like women in the kitchen, changing diapers, men at work, letting women do all the household chores, that does not square with biblical design. (laughs) That does not square with biblical design. A biblical marriage is not necessarily a traditional marriage, and a traditional marriage is not necessarily a biblical marriage. Again, as an example, when me and my bride first got married almost 20 years ago, I was trapped in this traditional idea of the man makes the money, the man spends the money, right? So that's what we did. Of course, she made like 10 times more money than I did. So she goes out and she makes the money, but I I was going to be the one to decide what bills got paid and how we spent it, and I set the budget up. I did a miserable job of this, miserable job, right? Because every time she wanted something, I would just tell her yes, because I love her. She's hot, and I'm excited to be married to her. She's letting me live with her. We're a young couple. So she says, there's a shoe sale down the road. I'm like, buy whatever you want to buy. 
So she goes and buys. Look at that. I told you we were in Haiti today. Listen. <laughs> Listen, that bat comes out only in the summers, and he never lands. Okay? Never lands. He's not going to hurt you, I promise. He's just wanting you to know he's here. He just wants to wave high, and then he will go back when he figures out there's nothing here. <laughs> That's awesome. Please. That's He'll be all right. He's not going to hurt anybody. It is all the noise. I think the microphones and the sound pump them all out of sleep, and I think that's what's going on. So, <laughs> my wife would spend money because I told her to spend money. I said it was totally fine for her to spend money. She would get manicures whenever she wanted manicures, and by week three, the gas was shut off. We had no gas in the house. So that was a key time where we gave the finances over to my bride, and we have done that ever since. So this is what this means when it comes to a division of labor, right? There is a collaboration and a mutual preferring of the other. She tells me, sometimes on a daily basis, you cannot spend money there. That's not a good idea. We don't have the money for that. We don't have something set up for that, right? And then I'm just following. I'm submitting. Okay. But if I come to her and I say, I really feel like we need to change the way we give our money, or I feel like we need to do something a little bit differently with this, she does not tell me no. She says, well, let's talk about it. So there is a mutual preferring. There's a mutual submission. But we made that decision ahead of time, and we haven't thought about it in 19 years. It's been very helpful for us. Right? So here's the goal. The couple should adopt and guard the pattern where the husband leads and gives up his life. And the wife supports and gives up her life in a way that makes sense to them directly. Directly. Okay, so go ahead and stand up with me. I am closing this out. We're going to close this out. But listen, you're about to spend some time where the lights are out and you won't see the bat. And so you'll be able to, you'll be able to worship God <laughs> undistracted, I'm sure, right? And as you do that, and as you take communion in the back, we have the elements of communion in the back, so we have bread, we have juice. That is symbolic of something that we've been talking about, right? When we gather around the table, we do something remembering that Jesus did to be our groom. The broken bread, the juice, that's what Jesus did to be our groom. And he did this when we were at our worst. He gave himself up, and he took responsibility for a mess that was not his. He did not say, your problem he did not say, me first. He did not say, you clean yourself up. He said the opposite. He said, I'll take your problem. I'll die for you. I will clean you up with the washing of my word. If you leave with any truth today, don't leave with, I need to be a better husband or I need to be a better wife. Leave with the fascination of what a good groom Christ has been to us. Let that be the imprint and the tattoo on your soul for this passage, because that's what Paul is saying. Because as great as marriage is, it's going to pass away. It's fleeting. It's, it's actually temporary. Marriage in this life is a shadow of an ultimate marriage that's going to come. There will become, I know it sounds weird, listen, there's going to be a day where we are swimming in the glory of God, and we will have no sadness over the fact that we won't be married in heaven like we are here. That's hard to admit if you're in a happy marriage. If you're in a happy marriage, you just like the idea of always being with your spouse. It will be better than it is here. You won't be married like you are here, but it will be better than you are here. And you won't care. You'll be excited about it. 
You'll be swimming in the glory of God. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being good to us and for being kind. I thank you for those of us who are married and those of us who love you, that by your Holy Spirit you can show us where self-preservation is rearing its head, where it's hard for us to go and die. Lord, that for us as we pray and as we sing, that you show us where we are not satisfied in you. Even those of us who are in here who are saved and love you but are single, that we know that a spouse won't satisfy us, that God is better than a marriage. God is better than a perfect spouse. And Lord, that there would be an impulse on all, even singles, to pray for the couples in this church and to begin to believe God now for a couple that would mentor them when they are freshly married. And then, Lord, for those in here who are far from you, skeptical, searching, whatever, they just know that they are not a lover of Jesus. I mean, they've been hearing words like submission and giving up and going to die. These are all phrases that end autonomy, but they do give us freedom. They take away our individuality and our autonomy, but they give us an ins- just an insane freedom. So Lord, as you minister to different people in different ways today, Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to draw close to you without distraction, without interruption, that we would be able to devote ourselves as grooms after a better groom and as brides after an ideal bride, a better bride, and even as single people, that we would see um, that our perfection and and satisfaction is not ever going to be found in something like marriage. But that for all of us, when we see the very boring, normal, predictable covenant of marriage, that we see a piece of you a beautiful piece of you, and that as we are couples here in this city, that the city sees a little bit of the gospel and how we handle each other. Lord, we love you. You're so kind to us, and you're so beautiful, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.